You are listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com. You know, words are powerful things, and the fact is that some words are even more powerful than others. In fact, I would say this, that I think there are very few things in this world that are more powerful than words. And we've all heard the saying, right, that children's chant, that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I think that we all pretty much have consensus that that is just a very wrong statement, right? Like, it's not at all correct. The fact is, and we all know it, that words can hurt much more than sticks or stones uh, because they don't hurt us in ways that are physical. Words are, are much more than just sounds that are caused by air passing through our larynx and out our mouths. Words do much more than just convey information or ideas. You see, words have real power. Words have the power to destroy a person's spirit. Words have the power to stir up hatred or violence. Words have the power to cause divorces, murders. Words have the power to set nations at war with one another. Words have the power to inflict wounds, which although they're unseen, they're wounds indeed. They can affect a person for their entire life. Words also have the power, conversely, to give a person joy and peace, happiness and security. Words can heal. They can affirm. The book of Proverbs puts it this way, that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. So words are powerful. In fact, words are much more powerful than sticks or stones. That's for sure. You know, it's often been said that actions speak louder than words. And while I think that's generally true, there's also another part to that, and that's this, that actions usually happen as the result of words, don't they, right? So words inform our actions. Words motivate us and move us to actions. Words have the power to start movements and revolutions. Think how much the words of men like Karl Marx Adolf Hitler, the words of men like Winston Churchill and Martin Luther King Jr. have affected and shaped the actions of people over the last 100 years. Just this past week, you probably all know about this terrible shooting that happened in Charleston, right? And, and the more you read up about it, the more you see how it was racially motivated. And there was one particular website which they are, you know, saying really motivated this person, really kind of radicalized him as a radical racist, Right? So words incited and spurred on this man's actions. Today's Father's Day is another example. And we all know that the words of a father are some of the most powerful words that we will ever hear in our entire lives. And for you dads who are here today, we, we remember on this day, Father's Day, that we have an incredible responsibility and we have an incredible opportunity with our words, how we use our words in the lives of our children. Because life and death are in the power of the tongue. The Bible says in the book of James that words have the power to set the whole world on fire. So whether for good or for evil, words are powerful. And that is the major theme of this section of the book of Acts that we're going to look at today in chapters 3 and 4. 
The story of Christianity is the story of a group of people who had nothing going for them except they had God and they had a message. But that message that they had was the most powerful message the world has ever known. It's a message that sparked a revolution that's still going on to this very day. It's a message that has changed countless lives and has changed history and has changed the world and continues to do so to this day. So the title of today's message is Powerful Words. And as we go through this section today, here's what we're going to see on this topic of Christianity and its words and its message, okay? Here we're going to see, first of all, the content of these words. Then we're going to talk about the impact of these words. Then we're going to talk about the threat of these words. And then we're going to see the absolute importance of these words. You ready? All right. The content of these words. Now, just to catch you up to where we're at, we're going to be picking up today in verse 22. But to catch you up to where we're at, we left off last week seeing an incredible occurrence. A man who was crippled from birth is now over 40 years old and he was healed in a miraculous way. Peter and John, they were two of Jesus' 12 disciples. They were leaders amongst the early Christians. They were walking to the temple one day to pray and they noticed this man, a common sight there, a man begging for alms at the gate of the temple. And as the man reached out his hand, asking them for money, Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And he took that man's outstretched hand and he helped the man to stand up. And as he did, that man was instantly healed. It was an, it was an incredible sight. And it happened in a very visible place, a very public place. A lot of people saw it. People there on the Temple Mount, they had seen this man for years. He was, uh, you know, part of the... Uh, Part of the background of the temple, right? He was just always there every day. They had passed by him for years. And so this sight of this crippled man being healed so that he was now able not only to stand and walk, but we even read that he was able to leap and jump. That was something that drew immediate and a lot of attention. People gathered around to see what had happened. And Peter used this opportunity to tell the people, hey, this thing that you just saw, this incredible thing, it wasn't me. I didn't, I am not the one who did this. Jesus Christ healed this man. Now, now there's the thing you got to remember when we think about this story, that this is Jerusalem. And it's not that long after Jesus was crucified. So everybody in Jerusalem at this time, there was nobody who had not heard about Jesus of Nazareth and the things that had happened with him. Everybody knew this name, Jesus of Nazareth. He had gained great following as a teacher, but in the end he had been put to death. He had been publicly executed right here in this city, not far from the temple itself in the city of Jerusalem. The Jews had ordered him to be executed because he, a man, claimed to be God. The Romans had ordered Jesus also to be executed, but for a different reason, because he claimed to be the true king of the Jews. So this is an interesting case, right, in which the Jews and the Romans, who usually didn't see eye to eye on anything, they teamed up and they joined forces to execute this man who claimed to be the Messiah, who claimed to be the Savior of the world, who claimed to be the King of Kings. And everyone in Jerusalem knew about it, right? It was public knowledge. It wasn't a secret. People in Jerusalem also probably knew that this man, Jesus, his body, three days after he had been executed, had mysteriously gone missing. And, and people didn't know where it was. And they knew that his disciples had claimed that God had actually raised him from the dead. And there were people who claimed to have seen him alive after his execution at various times and places. 
So Jesus was something, somebody that everybody in this area knew about, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a secret. So now with this man who's healed, in, in a way that no one can deny, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, now stands up and says, I didn't heal this man. Jesus Christ healed this man. And he says, guys, you guys, you know what you did? You rejected Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, and Jesus is alive, and he's still healing people even today. And here's the proof of it. This man stands before you healed today. He says, Jesus, he was no ordinary man. He was the Messiah. Jesus was the one who God appointed for you to be your Savior, and you didn't realize it. You didn't recognize it at the time. You rejected him. You killed him. But God raised him from the dead, and even though what you did was bad, ultimately it actually fulfilled God's purposes and plans. But, but here's the thing. If you now will change your thinking about Jesus, if you will change your posture towards Jesus, if you will recognize him as Lord and Savior, then God will forgive you for every wrong that you've done, and he will give you a new life in him. He says, this man, this crippled man, was made well through faith in Jesus Christ. But if you will put your faith in him, too, in Jesus Christ too, God will give you something much more significant, much more important than just a physical healing. He'll take away your sins. He'll forgive you and you will experience life and refreshment in the deepest part of your soul because he'll take away your sin and he'll give you a new life and he'll make you a new person. That's what we're, where we left off last week. In the middle of this great speech that Peter's giving to this crowd that's gathered because they saw this man healed uh, from being crippled. So now we're going to pick it up and I'm going to show you the content of Peter's words and I'll show you why they're significant. This last part, why I saved it for today. Why it's significant in several ways. So please read with me from Acts chapter 3 verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So here, as we look at the content of these words, we see that Peter tells these people and us something about Jesus that is absolutely central to the message of Christianity. Something which, if you really grasp it, it will change the way that you think about so many things about your own life and about the world around you. Okay, so first of all, what is Peter saying? And second, what does it mean for us? Okay, that's how we're going to break this down. So first of all, what is Peter saying? Well, Peter's saying this, that everything that came before in their nation's history, from God's promises to Abraham to Moses, who foretold of a great prophet who would be greater than him, whom God would send to the people, to the words of every single prophet from Samuel on, all of them were talking about one thing, one person. They were all talking about Jesus. In other words, he's saying Jesus is the answer to all the riddles. Jesus is the answer to all the mysteries. Jesus is the story behind all the stories. Everything in all of history has been building up to this man, Jesus. All the hopes and dreams of every generation, all the hopes and dreams of every person in their heart of hearts, they're fulfilled in this man, Jesus. 
You know, there were many great men in their history. Moses, Samuel, Abraham, he mentions them here. But all of these men, he says, they all looked forward to something. They all looked forward to someone who would be like them in some ways, but ultimately greater than them. Moses told the people before his death that one day God would raise up someone like him, but even greater. I guess you could call him a true and greater Moses. Moses himself said that. Now, who was Moses, right? Moses was what? He was a liberator, right? Moses was a liberator. But one day, he says, someone's going to come, and he's not just going to be a liberator. He's going to be the true and greater liberator, the one who will truly set you free, not just from political oppression, but one who will truly set you free, ultimately, from everything that holds you captive and enslaves you. Moses was a prophet, but one day, there will come one who is a true and greater prophet, Moses was a priest, but one day a true and greater priest will come who will stand in the gap between God and man. And what Peter's saying is that Jesus is the true and greater Moses, and he has come. He's the one who Moses himself pointed to. This is the content of Peter's message. He's saying that Jesus is the true and greater Samuel. He is the true and greater Abraham. He is the one... That everything and everyone in history has pointed to and looked forward to. Jesus is the answer to all the riddles. And this is the content of Peter's message, and it's incredible. Because if you really get this, it changes the way you look at everything. You see, this isn't just something that Peter came up with himself. This is exactly how Jesus taught his disciples to read the Bible. In the Gospel of Luke, we read about how Jesus taught his disciples from the Bible. And we read this. Now think about this. It says this, that Jesus taught them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, that must have been an incredible thing to experience. I mean, imagine that you sit down with Jesus, he pulls out all the scrolls, right, and he opens them up, and he just goes through it one by one, every little thing, and he says, see this? That's talking about me, the descendant of Abraham through whom all nations of the world would be blessed. That's me, he says, right? The true and greater Moses, who Moses himself predicted. That's me, the eternal king that David talked about. It's me, the sacrificial system with the scapegoat who bears the sins of the nation and is sent off into the wilderness on the day of atonement. He says, that's me, the Passover lamb whose blood is spread on the doorpost. And if you are covered by the blood of the lamb, then the angel of death passes over you. That's me. And so on and so on. All the riddles, all the mysteries, all of the loose threads that don't seem to make any sense, they all come together in Jesus That was Jesus' message to his own disciples. And this is the content of Peter's message to these people, that Jesus is the answer to all the riddles. He is the underlying story beneath every story. So that's what Peter said, okay? That's the content. That's what he said. But now let me talk about this. What does that mean for us? Well, here's what it means. It means that all the stories of your life, all the riddles, all the mysteries of your life, all the things that you seek after, that you strive for, that you long for in your heart of hearts, all of those things are ultimately filled. They find their climax and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You know, the news was just full a couple weeks ago with the story of Bruce Jenner. Anybody happen to catch that, right? So 65-year-old, a former Olympian. He's also a uh, reality TV personality. And he decided that at 65 years old, he would change his gender and he would 
go through the whole process, right, surgically and everything, to become a woman, and he changed his name to Caitlin. And so people on both sides of the issue, right, they were kind of blowing up social media for a while, some celebrating this as great progress for society, and others kind of bemoaning it, uh, bemoaning the state of our society that we're at a place where this is praised and, and held up as heroic. But there was something about this story that really stuck out. I don't know if you caught it, but, but it's this that what Bruce Jenner said he was after, right? He, he stated why he was doing this, what he was really trying to accomplish by changing his gender, changing his name, all that stuff. What he said is this. He says, I want a new start. I, I want a new life. I want to become a new person. He wants a new life. In other words, uh, to use our phraseology, we might say that what Bruce Jenner is really wanting, by his own admission, he wants to be born again. What's interesting about Bruce Jenner, right, is that he has experienced a level of success in several areas of life that most of us can only dream of, that we'll never experience ourselves. And yet, having had such great success at 65 years old, he now feels such a deep sense of dissatisfaction with who he is that he has now turned to and has the funds to do it, he has turned to the greatest transformation that is medically possible in our day and age. It, it is the, the one way that he is seeking to become a new person. You see, what Bruce Jenner is sensing is something which is true, which all of us innately sense to one degree or another, and that is this, that there is something fundamentally wrong with us. You know that? I mean, he senses that. We all sense that. I sense it. You sense it. That there is something fundamentally and deeply wrong with us. And, and all of us have this desire to be set free from that, to become a new person, to shed this person who we are and have a new start at life, as Jesus called it, to be born again. You see, what Bruce Jenner is ultimately seeking, what all of us ultimately long for in our heart of hearts is a new, a fresh start, a clean slate. It's a desire which finds its fulfillment truly in Jesus Christ. It's through him that we can actually be born again and be changed on the inside, that we can be forgiven of our past, that we can actually become new people. Because here's the... Here's the thing about what Bruce Jenner did, right, is that he changed himself as radically as he possibly could on the outside. But that only really, it still only goes so far, right? Uh, on the inside, he's still the same person. He still lays down his head on the pillow at night, and he's still the same person he was the day before. Who he is hasn't changed at the deepest level, which is ultimately what he stated himself that he was after, you see, the only way for any of us to be changed and transformed in our innermost being, in our heart, in our soul, is to come to Jesus Christ and receive a new life and a new name and a new identity. In other words, that desire that many people have for a fresh start in life is something which can only be found and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what I'm saying, that's just an example. What I want you to see is this, that all the stories of our lives... All the riddles, all the mysteries, all of our deepest desires, they find their fulfillment and their answer in Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter's saying here, and that's how it applies to us. Today's Father's Day. Here's another example for you. Fathers are another example of the same principle, that what all of us long for is a father, and the, the ultimate desire we have for a father is fulfilled in the Father. You see, what makes the measure of a good father, is it not, is how much that father is like the father 
just and merciful, holy and loving, providing and tender. And, and even people who don't have a good relationship with their father or who have never had a relationship with their father, they still have a sense, they still have an understanding of what a good father would probably be like because all of us have this deep desire which is ultimately to know God the Father through Jesus Christ. So this is Peter's message, and it's profoundly true for us, just as it was for them, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams. Jesus is the story underlying every story, including the stories of your life. It's all pointing to Jesus. He is the answer to all the riddles. Everything that you seek for and everything that you desire in your heart of hearts is ultimately found in and through him. That's the content of these words which Peter preached. Now let's look at the impact of those words, our second part. Let's read from verse 1 of chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So here's Peter. He's speaking to this crowd of people that's gathered around. And the Jewish religious leaders, they run up as they see this crowd, and they hear what Peter's saying, and they say, stop, stop. And they break up this crowd, and they send Peter away, and it says they laid hands on Peter and John, and they arrested them. They took them into custody. And with this, we see the beginning of persecution and opposition to the Christian movement and message, which is something which would characterize Christianity for several centuries and in some parts of the world even to this very day. Now, they, why were they arrested? They were arrested because of the words they were saying. Now, you can imagine that this must have been pretty intimidating of an experience, right? Here's Peter and John. They're full of love. They're full of the Holy Spirit. And now they find themselves getting arrested. And it would seem that they probably got roughed up a little bit, right? Because we read later on in the chapter that they were arrested and they were further threatened. So if you're further threatened, that means that you were priorly threatened. So they were threatened a lot. Now, what kind of threats do you think the authorities made to them? Well, probably they said things like this. If we catch you again speaking these words, then you're going to wish you were never born. If we catch you again speaking these words, then we're going to get to your family and you're going to wish you hadn't done that. If you do this again, well, let me just remind you what we did to Jesus. You don't want us to do that to you now, do you? And that must have been very intimidating. So this is the first impact we see of these words. People were threatened by them, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit more in the next point. But the much more significant impact of these words, we read there in verse 4, that the people who heard these words believed and became Christians. Many of them, it says the number of Christians increased greatly, now exceeding 5,000 men, right? And so that's a common way of counting people in the ancient world where you would count the men. But what that means is that in our counting, right, we're counting women and youth as well, we're looking at over 10,000 people probably at this point who have believed the message of the gospel and become Christians. Many who heard the word believed. That was the impact of these words. You see, words are powerful, and some words are more powerful than others. And the words of this message of the gospel are the most powerful words that the world has ever known. 
the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, he tells us how the words of God are uniquely powerful. And here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the impact of Peter's words that he spoke that day is that people's lives were changed. Their future, the trajectory of their lives were changed forever. The impact of these words was that some, some people felt threatened by them, but for many more people who heard the words, they accepted them and they believed and it made them alive. In other words, in spite of opposition, many people heard these words and believed and their lives were changed. Now it's interesting, if you look at the history of Christianity, over and over, right, there's always been people, even to our modern day, right, who will proclaim the end of Christianity, right? The death of Christianity has finally come. We finally got to it, right? Political leaders and movements have, uh, you know, announced that they have stomped out Christianity. They've stamped it out through oppression or through uh, other programs. They've made Christianity obsolete. Just about 40 years ago, the country of Albania in southern Europe de declared that they had successfully eradicated Christianity once and for all. Others have tried to disprove Christianity and discredit it, but yet all of these attempts have been made and they've really just come to nothing. And Christianity has continued to grow. And just for your information, in Albania today, there is a growing and thriving Christian movement. And, and so Christianity has continued to grow and everywhere it goes with this message of the gospel, lives are changed and transformed, societies are changed, and the people who have claimed to stamp out Christianity they're gone, but Christianity is not. You see, because these words about Jesus, they're the words of eternal life. And words are powerful, and some words are more powerful than others, and the most powerful words the world has ever known are the words of the message of the gospel. And since that's the case, sharing these words with the world is of utmost priority. On a practical level, let me just say this. Here's what that means. That when you would give someone advice... I would encourage you, don't just give them some Hallmark card platitudes or some trite cliches to make them feel better for a moment. Give them the very words of life. Give them the message of the gospel. Share with them the message of Jesus and how the gospel applies to their life and that situation. Now let's continue on and let's look at the threat of these words in verse 5 of chapter 4. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priest's family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, if you think about it, you can't really fault these men for wanting to know who is preaching and teaching what on the Temple Mount because these men, that was their job and responsibility. They were responsible to know about what was going on on the temple and they were responsible for the spiritual well-being of Israel. So this question, this inquiry, it is as to what Peter and John were teaching and who they were proclaiming, it's, it's a valid question, it's a valid inquiry. But these men, these authorities who are in these positions of power, what they do with Peter and John's response very, reveals very much what they value and what they fear the most. 
Because here, here's what we're going to read in just a minute, that Peter and John boldly respond that they are preaching and doing all these things by the name of Jesus. Now if you'll look down with me to verse 15, here's what happens. We see that these religious leaders then confer with each other, you know, what should we do after they've, they've heard all this? And their conclusion is that a legitimate miracle has indeed taken place, but yet they still try to silence the message of the Christians because they feel threatened by these words. Now, now ask yourself, what exactly was it about the things that Peter and John were saying that made these men feel threatened? What was the threat? Right? If what Peter and John are saying is true, if Jesus is the one who, who God sent for them and they killed him, but God did raise him from the dead, if all the evidence is pointing to this, well then what? Well then what that means is that everything's going to change. These men, their power, their status quo, it's going to change everything. They have this authority. It's all going to change. And, and if word of what these Christians are saying starts to get around, I mean, their power is at risk. Their, their institutions are threatened. Uh, everything they have, their way of life, their status quo, it's all up in the air. In other words, the words of the gospel threatened their way of life. It threatened the status quo, how things had always been for so long, as long as anybody could remember. The gospel threatened to take away from them that which gave them their identity and their sense of importance. And so very sadly, what these men choose to do is, rather than asking the question, is this really true? They seek to silence these words because their main concern is protecting their way of life and maintaining the status quo. Now let me tell you this, the same threat exists today. Everywhere the gospel is proclaimed, in your life as well. If you will follow Jesus, guess what? There is a chance that it will change everything, that it will shake up the status quo. There's a chance that following him might mean that you have to give up things which you currently find your value in and your identity in. And the question that people ask is, well, is that too high of a price to pay? And certainly many people are worried that it is too high of a price to pay. And that's why they're afraid to really give their lives wholly over to God. David Livingston, maybe you've heard the name, he was a missionary in the, in the 1800s to Africa, and he basically pioneered Christian missions into the interior of the African content, continent. To give you some perspective on the life and the long-term effects of David Livingston's work, when David Livingston began his work of moving the gospel, spreading the gospel message into the interior of Africa in the 1800s, sub-Saharan Africa was less than 5% Christian, and most of those Christians were actually white settlers who had come to South Africa. So today, just over 200 years later, this part of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, is roughly 60% Christian. In fact, 25% of all Christians in the world today live in Africa. That's compared with 12% of the world's Christians who live in North America. So David Livingston, once uh, he was on a furlough or a visit to Britain, and he was given the opportunity to speak to the students of Cambridge University. And uh, there's this famous, you know, interaction that he had there at Cambridge University where one of the students raised his hand and asked him a question about how he was able to sacrifice the benefits of an upper-class life that he would have had in Britain, how he was able to sacrifice that to go and live in Africa for all of his life. And here was Livingston's response. He said, sir, I never made a sacrifice. 
I never made a sacrifice. He says, rather, I consider it a privilege. He says, sickness, danger, forgoing the common conveniences of this life, all of these things are nothing to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. Now, in one sense, David Livingston did indeed sacrifice a lot to spend his life in Africa, didn't he? He gave up comfort, for sure. He gave up wealth. He gave up many of the benefits and luxuries of living in England. He gave up a lot of the opportunities and a lot of the experiences that other people in England had. He had come from a wealthy family, but he became poor. So in one sense, we have to say that, yes, David Livingston did give up a lot to go and serve God in the way that he did. And all of those things, right, the money, the status, the experiences, these were things that those people in England considered very important and valuable to their life and identity. To give those things up would have been considered by them a very great sacrifice. But although David Livingston did indeed give those things up, he said, I never considered it a sacrifice, not even for a minute. I never felt like I was missing out because what I got in return was so much greater. You know, people often ask Jesus, they would ask him, Jesus, what is the cost of following you? What would I have to give in order to follow you? And do you remember what Jesus' response was every single time? He said, oh, don't worry about it. You don't have to give up anything. All you got to do is pray this prayer and then we're good, right? No, that's not at all what he said. No, he didn't say that. And he said, Jesus, what's the cost of following you? And each and every time, you know what he said? Everything. 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 That's what it's going to cost you to follow me. All of your life, everything you've got, if you want to follow me, that's the cost. You got to be willing to lay it all down. And some of it I'll give back to you, some of it I won't. Some of it I'll give you something else in return. But when you do that, when you lay it all down, Jesus says that's when you begin to truly live. You see, the threat of the gospel, it's a real threat. But, it, but it's not necessarily a negative threat. See, here's the threat of the gospel. That if you really make him the master of your life, you might lose things that you once held dear like for these guys, right, their positions of power, these, these religious leaders we're reading about, the threat was to their positions of power, their identity as authority figures. But the promise of the gospel is that in giving your life to Jesus, in laying everything down, you will gain much more, both now and for eternity, than you ever gave up to follow him. This past week, a woman named Elizabeth, Elliot passed away. I don't know if you've heard the name. Maybe you have. In her younger years, Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary to Ecuador. And in her later years, she became a well-known author. Now, the first book that Elizabeth Elliot published was the diary of her husband, Jim Elliot, who died in Ecuador during their time as missionaries. Uh, he was killed by the people, the Alca Indians, who he went to take the gospel to. Now, in that diary, Jim Elliot's diary, he wrote these words which have become very famous. He said this, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. And that is so very true. The threat of the gospel is that it will cost you everything, but the promise of the gospel is that you will get back infinitely more than you ever gave up in eternity with it. So finally, here's our fourth thing that we see here, and that is the absolute importance of these words. Please read with me from verse 8. 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. Now this same man, Peter, at one point in his life denied Jesus three times in the face of difficulty and intimidation. But now, faced with threats and intimidation, he doesn't back down. He says very clearly, we did this in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. You rejected him, but he is the chosen one. How incredibly bold is that? Now look at even more so in verse 12, what Peter says next. He says, and there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter doesn't say that Jesus is one option among many. He says he is the only Savior. That there is no other name by which we must be saved. There is no other name by which we can be saved. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. In fact, it's a clear teaching of Jesus himself. To be faithful to Jesus' own words, we have to say that this is what he's saying, that there is only one way to be saved, and it's through him. And what this means and what these men understood was that the words of the gospel, not only are they powerful words, not only are they good words, but they are absolutely critical words. These words of the gospel are the hope of mankind. They are the way to be saved. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So here are these men, they're fishermen by trade, they don't have the formal religious education that these other men do, but yet they're very knowledgeable about the scriptures. And not only that, they have this incredible boldness and confidence to them, they have this incredible faith. Now where does this boldness and confidence, where does this knowledge of the scriptures come from? It came from spending time with Jesus. That was the best thing that these men had going for them. Without that, they're just ignorant men, right? Uneducated men. But when they've been with Jesus, that changes everything. It's what made them who they were. They had spent a lot of time with Jesus, and it showed. Now go down with me to verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them, this is what the authorities are saying, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For this man of whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So Peter and John, they say, look, you can arrest us, you can beat us, you can threaten us, but we will not, we cannot stop talking about what we've seen and heard. This message, these words, these aren't just our opinions. They're absolutely critical. We can't stop talking about this and we won't stop talking about this and we're willing to pay the price. Verse 23 
When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place and now Lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word in all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So these guys get out of jail. They go back to their gathering with their Christian friends and with the the other Christians and they tell them, here's what happened. And so, so these people get together and they pray. And I want you to notice what they pray. They, do they pray, God, get us out of this difficulty? Do they pray, God, save us from this situation? No, their prayer is, God, give us boldness to continue to speak your word no matter what happens. In spite of opposition, give us the boldness to continue to speak your word whatever the cost. This is how absolutely important they considered the message of the gospel to be. That they could not, that they would not stop sharing it, that they were even willing to suffer and die for it. And it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now some of you might be wondering, in fact several people have asked me recently, why is it, how is it that here in chapter 4 that these Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit when we already read back in chapter 2 that on the day of Pentecost they were already filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, why would it say that they were filled with the Holy Spirit again? add a little bit to this conversation look back at chapter 4 verse 8 where it says that Peter filled with the Holy Spirit spoke to the people who had him arrested now Peter's already been filled with the Holy Spirit right on on Pentecost so what is this now is it just kind of stating the fact hey he was filled with the Spirit kind of like hey and by the way he was Jewish that kind of thing like it's just a fact or is it stating that something happened that he was filled with the Holy Spirit because that's certainly what it seems like at the end of chapter 4. Now here's the key to understanding this. I think it does clear up a lot of the confusion. When we read here about these people being filled with the Holy Spirit, you got to differentiate this because it's not simply talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or having the Holy Spirit within you, which is something that happens when you accept Jesus Christ, when you become born again, right? This phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and elsewhere in the New Testament, it refers to a state of being under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. That's the best way to think about it, the controlling influence. Let me give you some examples. In Paul's letter in Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 18, Paul writes this. He says, Do not be filled with wine, in which is dissipation or debauchery, right? He says, Don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's making a clear contrast there between being filled with one thing or being filled with another. In other words, being filled with wine or under the controlling influence of alcohol or to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, to be under the controlling influence of God by his Holy Spirit. To make this even more interesting, in the original Greek text of that verse, Ephesians 
5, verse 18, where it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is written in the present continuous tense. In other words, the way we would say that in English is, be being filled continuously with the Holy Spirit. So here where we read that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke these words. What we're seeing is Peter, under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, spoke these words. When it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness, it means that they were under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, which caused them to speak the word of God in boldness. And let me say this in closing. This is what God wants for your life. It's what God wants for my life, that you would be set free from every controlling influence in your life other than him. Whether it's an addiction or some kind of substance abuse, whether it's insecurity or fear, whether it's pride or bitterness or jealousy or some attempt to prove yourself, whatever it is that drives you, whatever that controlling influence is in your life, God wants to set you free from that through the gospel and he wants to come into your life and be the controlling influence in your life. But how does that happen? How do you get to the place of being set free from the controlling influences of all those other things in your life and have God be the controlling influence in your life? It happens in the same way for us that it happened for them through embracing and receiving the simple but powerful words of the message of the gospel in its content, in its impact, in its threat, and in its absolute importance. Amen? Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for these words of the gospel. We thank you for this content of the gospel, Lord, that, that in you we can have hope because although we are even more flawed, even more sinful than we even realize, Lord, the message of the gospel is that we are even more loved by God than we ever could dare to imagine. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that although we are so flawed that you had to die for us that we could be saved, thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you are glad to die for us. And Lord, may we find confidence and hope and peace today knowing that our Heavenly Father loves us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content, or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com.